This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Frames Magazine. It's a quarterly publication that showcases the work of many of the best in contemporary photography, including Stephen McCurry, Martin Parr, and Amy Vitale. Each issue is beautifully printed and thoughtfully curated by its editors. It's a wonderful way to discover and be inspired by great photography. Subscribe today and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME to enjoy a 10% discount on your monthly and yearly subscription when you visit readframes.com forward slash join. Punk rock music during the 70s and 80s was the antithesis of rock and roll of the period. Commercial rock and roll was tightly controlled by the music industry, which determined not only who would be produced and recorded, but what could be heard over AM and FM radio stations. Punk rockers didn't bother with gatekeepers. They created their music, their sound, and culture with little more than the desire to make music and share what they had to say. They might not know how to read music or even play an instrument, but that wasn't going to stop them. Photographer Michael Greco was there as a photographer, but he was also there as a fan. He navigated the dark clubs of New York and Boston and photographed bands and performers who became the legends of the genre, including the Cramps, Dead Kennedys, Talking Heads, and Elvis Costello. He showcases this special period in his book, Punk, Post-Punk, New Wave, On Stage, Backstage, In Your Face. I hope you enjoy this conversation touching on his photography and life during this amazing period in rock and roll history. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, congrats on the on the book. Thank you. It really was fascinating for me because I, I wasn't into the club scene when I was coming up in the early 80s, but I was definitely became familiar uh, with the music in my in, in my late teens, there was a group in my high school. My, I was I went to Sarah High School in Gardena, which was a largely, it was a Catholic uh, all boys school, largely made up of, of blacks and Latinos, and so most of the music that people had grown up with, including myself, had been sort of R and B. But there was a group in there who called themselves the Duckies, and the they had the Duckies, <laughs> and they had a they had a safety pin with a yellow duck on it. So that that's a play on the Dickies, which was a band. So right, and so they were they were the ones who sort of introduced me to the punk scene and the new wave scene, because otherwise I had sort of no idea. So when yeah, I yeah. when I look through the look through the book and I see the bands and it's just like brings back a a lot of memories of being introduced to that uh, and introduced to that music. And even though I lived close to Hollywood, I I was never one of those one of those kids that ended up going going to the going to the clubs but it was nevertheless really uh, a a fascinating exploration of what that scene was like for you and a whole lot of people back on the east coast let's let's talk about what punk was back then because it's there are a couple of essays that that talk about it being sort of a sort of reaction to what the rock scene was at that time but why don't we talk a little bit about about that uh to start off to sort of set a Set a stage I mean, for it. it was a it was a reaction to 
not just the rock scene. Like people knew bands because of the radio, right? The radio drove record sales and record sales were the way you got music. You went to a store and you bought a 12 inch piece of circular vinyl and you had to put it on a turntable and the way people heard music and knew what to buy was through the radio. And really that was all locked up. Like that was, uh, in the sixties, the record industry had figured out that record sales amounted to more than movie ticket sales, live concert sales, sports sales, Broadway theater, all combined, the revenue for vinyl, for records, was greater than all three of those categories, sports and theater and movies, right? Mm -hmm. So given that, the record industry really, you know, they, they created bands, they groomed bands, they figured out their look, they, they packaged music. And because it was a huge investment to get that music played, it was a, um, you know, you had to go to DJs and bribe them or give them cocaine or, you know, it was the payola that got your record paid. You would pay them off. So trying to get a band to break a band meant touring them, paying people off, paying the expenses of touring, having them to do shows, do advertising. So they stacked the deck by packaging music. And that packaged music sucked for the most part. I mean, there's there was some great stuff out of it. You know, you heard Bowie on the airwaves. Punk was a musical rebellion against the man. It was a musical rebellion against the system. And you know, I talk about this, you know, FM for rock had what was called AOR stations, album-oriented rock. So if you were the band Kiss or Boston or Alice Cooper, you would put out a record and you would get the radio station to play, to make six of those song hit, songs hits because that was guaranteed to sell the record. So, you know, you out of that, you had all of these bands, Kansas, Journey, you know, Rush, that I personally hated like you know <laughs> I, I didn't listen to that i grew up in new york i was a jazz listener you know i would go see experimental jazz traditional jazz but i'd also see the new york dolls and lou reed and i saw things that felt authentic and then the punk scene really happened and it sort of blew the doors off of the music industry it took a while but college radio started playing things that commercial radio wouldn't and then the college radio stations started getting listened to and Nielsen ratings. You know, my, my dear friend Oedipus is big, big DJ known internationally in, in 75. He started the very first punk radio show called Nocturnal Emissions. And I think that was Saturday nights and on the MIT station WTBS. And then that grew into the first daily punk radio show, The Late Risers Club, in, I believe, about 76, 77, which was a daily show, Monday through Friday, 9 to 12. And that 
like Oedipus would bring bands on like the Ramones and the Clash and Elvis Costello, and he got a Nelson rating. So that made commercial radio like the K-Rock station in Boston, WBCN, want to hire him. So it took the rebellion in the clubs and the concert halls and on college radio to make commercial radio, which was the conduit for everyone to hear music, have to open its doors to something they would have never opened opened their doors to. And the parallels of AM radio and FM radio are the same. I mean, rap and hip hop did the very same thing at the very same time for AM commercial radio. Like, you know, if you didn't want to hear Melanie and you wanted to hear something real, you know, or um, the Carpenters and you wanted to hear something, you know, a little more real, um, you know, rap broke in the clubs and, you know, on, you know, college radio stations and, you know, places like that in the same way. I, I mean, they have a, they have a very similar parallel that, that was a, re- it was a rebellion, you know, and I happened to be into music. I was studying as a photojournalist in college. I then started working for the Associated Press during the day in 78. And at night, because I was into the music, I was shoot for Boston Rock Magazine and WBCN, which was the the K-Rock commercial station, and be part of the scene. I had these this dual life, a photojournalist shooting the governor in the during the day, hungover and, you know, <laughs> saying, hi, Mike, and Mike Dukakis going, hi, Mike, how are you today? I'm like, oh, I'm great, Mike. You know, and at night I was in the clubs and hanging out with Billy Idol and The Clash and, you know, all the bands whose music I listened to. And, and the interesting thing is we just I was there because I was into it and I was part of the scene and I was, you know, a punker and a club kid. And and there was a very accepting culture of of, um, you know, you could be anyone and be accepted in that scene because it was a bunch of alt people. It was a bunch of alternative people. We weren't preppies and we weren't, you know, the typical, you know, we weren't, you know, people who wear suits and, and that sort of thing. We were the alt culture. So you were very accepted. And, and because of that, you were immediately part of that, um, you know, that club when it came to the bands and things like that. So there's a great quote that's uh, one of the essays. And I think he was, the writer was uh, quoting Joe Strummer saying that the bands are so big and, and, and as you said, they were packaged that, you know, a, a person who wanted to start a rock and a rock and roll band who wanted to become a rocker, unless they could see themselves being able to do it, it likely wouldn't happen. And the fact that punk sort of opened the door to the possibility that these people could, basically he says, if if you couldn't see yourself becoming a star, you wouldn't do it. And that punk made it possible for people to, to realize that without having a label behind them or even an education behind music, that it was possible. And that that was really a, a real impetus for 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 that, that that music scene. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, you had bands that couldn't play their instruments, right? You know, you had bands that could, they could strum two, two keys together and, you know, they couldn't play. And that was the antithesis of what the music companies produced. They wanted cool musicians and, you know, prog rock was really big. And yes, and there was a drum set that took up the whole stage. And, you know, the, the, those were really proficient musicians, but they had nothing to say. You know, as someone who, who loves jazz, a jazz musician always has something to say, you know, whether musically or, or what have you. And, and, you know, those bands had nothing to say. There's a great Clash song called um, uh, Hitsville, UK. It, it, like, if you read the lyrics to that, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty amazing. Remember, they say true talent will always emerge in time when lightning hits small wonder it's fast rough factory trade no expense accounts no lunch discounts no hyping up the chart the band went and knocked them dead in two minutes 59. i know the boys were all alone till the hitsville hits uk and it goes on to say no slimy deals no swarmy eels you know because that's what the record industry was about it was hyping stuff up the chart whether it was good or not they had spent, the record company had spent a lot of money producing this band and they wanted it to be a hit. So they'd spend any amount of money to make that happen. From from your experience, you, you just mentioned that a lot of these sort of big bands at the time really weren't saying anything. What were some of the, the punk bands that you really enjoyed? What do you remember them saying in their music that resonated with you? Well, The Clash was incredibly political. Washington Bullets and... Um, uh, oh my God, Charlie don't surf. You read those lyrics and, you know, as far as lyrics are concerned, you know, and, and the sex pistols also, you know, the sex pistols were incredibly irreverent about England and the clash was sort of, you know, very anti-American, uh, producing an album called Sand Sandinista, you know, talking about, you know, our guns and bullets being used to kill civilians and um, Charlie Don't Surf talking about napalming, you know, uh, the Vietnamese, um, the clash, but they were just clever. They were different. You know, the, the Buzzcock songs, Pete Shelley and, and Steve Diggle, um, you know, wrote songs that in some ways were love, you know, they were pop, they could have been pop songs, but they were, they had this driving, incredible punk sound behind them. Right. And, uh, but you would never hear a song like orgasm addict on FM radio in the seventies or eighties. Like, you know, I mean, even bands like the B 52s, they weren't like lyrically, they weren't re rebellious, but the music was rebellious too. You, you heard music that you wouldn't hear. The B-52s, you know, used to play on a little kid's toy piano and incorporate yeah. that into the music. And, and it was just anything to be different and interesting and add something to the mix. I mean, even the police who now in retrospect were so commercial but they weren't, you know, Sting said, if it wasn't for the punk movement, we would have never gotten played, never. And he's right. I mean, if you compare the police 
when they first came out with sort of an edgy punk kind of sound to to you know journey rush kansas you know bought the band boston like they were all like hit they were trying to be hit makers right and that wasn't that wasn't the driving force of the punk post-punk and new wave bands so how did you begin making making pictures of the bands and in, in, in the clubs uh, i know you were studying to be a photojournalist but had you already been in the clubs starting to make photographs when you started doing that or explain that to me. well i i lived at this in this dorm called uh 700 at 700 com ave which was called the zoo it it was the towers there were three towers it was built in like uh, it's the 70s where it was concrete and like the ugliest thing in the world and i lived in the towers and there was a little my freshman year we would go to this cheap bar called fathers they had like fathers one fathers two fathers three and we'd buy like quarters 25 cent screwdrivers which would tell you the time the price of the time and the quality of the alcohol and um but one night instead of doing that this place called the rat or the rat skeller which was our cbgb's it was just like cbgb's and I wandered downstairs and it was the battle of the bands. And there was this band called La Pest and they were playing this song better off dead. And I just sort of like got blown away. It's like, wow. And it was a very accepting, you know, I was, when I was a teenager, I had had, I'm trying to remember the tetracycline, which ruined the enamel on my teeth. So I had brown teeth until I got them capped, um, you know, as a teenager, late teens. You know, I was always teased. And I, I was with a group of sort of intellectual uh, loners. You know, there were five or six of us in high school. We're still friends. Um, we were sort of the intellectual loners. We were into jazz and we were into, you know, my friend Adam brought over the first Ramones album in 75, 76. And we, you know, he, he said, listen to this. And it's a song beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with a baseball bat. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it was just for shock value. Right. So, um, um, but we were that group and here wandering into a group of punks or this newly formed culture of people with pink hair and maybe ripped up clothes or, you know, spikes or whatever. They were accepting of everyone because everyone was an alienated kid there. You know, everyone. It was a very accepting, loving culture. And I immediately had got friends and... You know, and then it was a natural progression to to get access to the bands and music that you loved by photographing them. You know, I started getting assignments for uh, a small magazine fanzine called Boston Rock. I started getting assignments for the K-Rock station, WBCN. And I was hanging out all the time and I was hanging out backstage and and the other people hanging out like the DJs who would go backstage to say hello to the bands and you know, knew me and the bands could see that I was part of the scene and was friends with the DJs and that it was all okay, you know? So the camera was a way of, you know, gaining entree to the, to the scene and at the same time being part of the scene 
was a way of getting access with my camera. They worked hand in hand. You're known for your portraiture, for your filmmaking. People looking at your career, if they go to your website now, they just see how accomplished you are. But back then, uh, you were learning to do a lot, especially in terms of creating portraits. Tell me about the experience of photographing these young musicians having the access and sort of learning how to build a rapport and gain trust in order to be able to make a good image of them. Well, I, I, as I was mentioning, the trust sort of came because I was already part of the scene. They knew that, you know, if two or three DJs were backstage with the band afterwards because they got backstage passes, they knew that I was friends with the DJs and that I was cool and, you know, but I was also shooting for a magazine, uh, you know, I'd hang out with them and we'd take the band down to the after party afterwards. And, you know, we had Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth every time they were in town at an after party. And I'd hang out with Billy Idol all night doing drugs and drinking and, you know, there'd be a party going on. And I, I, I was just part of the scene and it, and that made it easier to do to gain access, but I don't think you would have that same access today. Oh, Pe no way. Put, people wouldn't allow you to take pictures of, of you doing blow, or if you were Lux interior of the cramps and your pants fell off, and I asked him to do a picture afterwards backstage, I don't think anyone would put their penis in a hot dog bun today and allow <laughs> you to photograph them. But it was a rebellion. So it wasn't, we're back to, record company produced crap. I mean, and we're back to stuff being managed and, you know, celebrities owning the rights to the, to the work and, you know, uh, um, we're back to that control, but these were bands. We have to realize that I was doing this and I never knew if these bands in 10 years, anyone would care or know who they were. Right. We, we right. didn't know we were, we just did this because we loved it we didn't know that the clash would become the clash and the, and the, you know, and the Ramones would become the Ramones and the sex pistols. I mean, sex pistols had a lot of publicity, but the buzzcocks would be the buzzcocks and the cure would be the cure. And, you know, I was at the cures first concert in, in the United States shooting video in 1980 they had to use my New York State driver's license without a picture on it to get one of the musicians into the club because they, they were too young. <laughs> Same thing with the Buzzcocks. I, I think that they couldn't get into the Bradford Ballroom because they were like seven, the, the drummer was 17 at the time. So, you know, you'd be, you'd be, it took me like 20 years to figure this out. I was so naive in some ways at the time. Um, um, uh, you know, very, very parochial, grew up in a Catholic family also. And, and we brought Pete she Shelley and the Buzzcocks over to a house party afterwards. And all night he kept giving me his telephone number and his address. And it took me like 20 years. And one, one day I woke up and go, he was hitting on me. <laughs> he was inviting me. I, I know he was married with a kid, but I, I, it, Diggle has told me, Shelly has since passed, which is makes me very sad because, uh, you know, this book has come out. I've reconnected with a lot of people. And, um, but yeah, Diggle's like, yeah, he was bisexual. He was hitting on you. <laughs> 
it took funny. me many years to figure it out. But we were, I had the two drummers to Adamant. I had Adamant all night wanting me to introduce him to a friend of mine, Carla Nolan, this beautiful, blonde, gorgeous, sexy DJ. And then I took the, his two drummers, Merrick and Chris, over to my house. We're doing drugs all night and drinking vodka and spinning records. And, hey, have you heard this one? Have you heard? All night. Like, that was the life. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, that's one of the things I miss is sharing records. I know people can share a, a song on their phone and send it to someone. But there's something else. There's something about being in a room together and putting the vinyl on and discovering something together or, or being excited about sharing. Yeah. And we would, else. I would go and I would spend the $30, which was a lot at the time for the import. Hey, listen to the new Mekons record or the new Modette's record or the new, um, Au Pairs record, like the new gang of four record, you know, and, and, Gang of Four, you still hear. The Mekons and the Modettes and the Oupairs, you don't still hear. But they were still great records, you know? It's, um, it was great music being made. Now, I've, I've photographed in numerous clubs, and uh, they are not designed with the photographer in mind. And uh, I'm sure that it was just, just as bad, if not worse, back then. You, you make a point about... Um, one of the clubs or a couple of clubs where, you know, the walls are painted black and probably the ceilings black and, you know, and you're of course are shooting film back in those days. So you have a whole host of challenges in terms of being able to make a decent uh, photograph. Talk, talk to me about, you know, some of the photographic challenges you faced making images, not just of the musicians as they were performing, but when you were say backstage making, making portraits. The backstage w wasn't bad, but the concert stuff was really bad. You got to you got to realize I was like I worked for the Boston Bureau of the Associated Press, being trained by Chip Morey, who was like four-time military photographer of the year, and David Tenenbaum, who was an amazing photographer, still friends with both some of the best photojournalists in the Associated Press system and, and, and best news photographers, right? So I, you know, those are the type of guys that would do the presidential pool and we would carry three camera bodies around, one with a flash with Tri-X at 400 and one with, uh, yeah, and that had a 24 or 35 on it, you know, for close-up capture something and then you had a body with maybe an 85 one four and a 50 millimeter one four one two and they were both pushed you know and and you would pick up what body you needed at the time it, it was you know so from a technical standpoint for our audience to realize yeah we focused our cameras we exposed the film manually, right? You, you had to take mm -hmm. a guess. Sometimes you would take an incident meter or a spot meter and have to figure out what the exposure was. And, you know, if you go to daysofpunk.com, which is the website for the book, the book is called um, uh, Punk, Post-Punk, New Wave, On Stage, Backstage, In Your Face, 1978 to 1991. It wouldn't make a good website. So the website <laughs> is 
daysofpunk.com. And if you go there and you look at a shoot like of the cramps, you could see I'm using flash for some cases. I'm trying some at uh, ambient light. I'm mixing, you know, you would do whatever felt right and you think would work because you were in like crazy lighting situations. Most clubs weren't horrendous. Um, most clubs weren't horrendous. Uh, the rat was impossible. Impossible. <laughs> the rat skeller was impossible. But at clubs like the Paradise, you know, with my relationship with Billy Idol and being close to Billy and his road manager, Ace Penna, um, I would go in at the Paradise and like in the ceiling put Vivitar 283s and with a with an oh, external okay. battery pack on a radio, not on a not on a uh, um, slave, with radios. And I looked at what the Sports Illustrated photographers would do in the Boston Garden, and I did the mini version of that. And you know, some of the pictures on the Days of Punk dot uh, com site, you know, of Billy performing live in color, they're flashed. They're flashes in the ceiling. So. I would do whatever it was. And, and for most of the portraits backstage, you know, it, this was back in the days of, of the, the Vivitar 283 and we would take it off camera and we'd put maybe a white card in the back of it yeah. and bounce in the ceiling. So, or if the room was black, like the spit nightclub, I'd take the card and put it all the way up. And at least it would be a little softer than uh, a little softer than, you know, direct flash. And it was off camera. So I think for the like the Susie and the Banshees portraits that I did it that way. For the the B-52s, I brought an umbrella and a strobe. I had a big umbrella behind me in a strobe and they literally taped a piece of seamless to the wall behind me and they came off the stage. They knew I'd be shooting them. It was the cover of Boston rock. They came off the stage, they posed, I shot five frames and they left. Wow. <laughs> When I was coming up as a young photographer, I drew a lot of knowledge and inspiration from magazines that showcased wonderful photography. Two of my favorites were National Geographic and American Photographer magazines. I would return to copies of those publications repeatedly, trying to discern how photographers made their images. It helped me to aspire to be able to make those kinds of images one day. Though today many people look for images on a website or a mobile app, I'm so glad that editors like the ones at Frames Magazine believe in showcasing great photography in a printed form. They carefully curate each quarterly issue and print it on quality paper to ensure that you have a wonderful reading experience today and years from now. Enjoy what they have to offer by subscribing today and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME to enjoy a 10% discount on your monthly and yearly subscription when you visit readframes.com forward slash join. So, so tell me, when you, were, when you were producing these images, you had to process the film, you know, make the contact sheet, choose your selects. Tell me about that process back in the day in terms of how that would work in terms of getting images to, to the magazine. 
Well, I'm the Greg Reedman, who if if you look at the book, there's a picture of Greg Reedman on air at WTBS, which is now WMBR. Ted Turner brought bought the call letters. It was a little fifty watt station at MIT until he bought the call letters. He and bought the call. Oh like, wow! You know, a, a whatever a ten thousand watt station <laughs> because he bought the call letters. It's MBR now, and there's a picture of Greg Reedman from the Late Risers Club with Adam Ant holding up the New York Dolls. He was holding up one of his favorite albums. Yeah, and he was also my editor at Boston Rock, and I had a place at two seventeen Newbury Street, which was between Exeter and Fairfield. And if you went a few blocks further past Gloucester, they went alphabetical, past Gloucester to Mass Ave. At Mass Ave, there was Newberry Comics, which was the publisher of Boston Rock. So Greg would literally, there were no cell phones. There was no email. (laughs) (laughs) Greg would literally come and two blocks and knock on my door. Hey, I have an assignment for you. Or I'd walk down and bring him a bunch of prints. But you you would process the film. I'd make contact sheets. And then, but I'd really print what I wanted them to print. You know, there's an old adage, never give someone something that you don't want to see in print or public. So I never would give them stuff that I didn't want to see. I mean, sometimes I'd give them contact sheets to look and every once in a while, someone would pick something that, you know, was great. And I, you know, didn't pick it, but for the most part, I just printed my selects. I, at the newspaper and at the Associated Press, you wouldn't even cut them up and make contact sheets. You would take a loop, put it at your eye, roll the film through your two fingers so it didn't scratch on the loop. You'd take a hole punch and punch the bottom of the sprockets. You'd make your selects that way. You'd pick eight or ten pictures for the newspaper, let's say. You'd put all your film around your neck like a necklace (laughs) you would then go into the back and find the sprocket and go print it and you wouldn't even go to a contact sheet you would just you you would edit that way you were always on deadline oh yeah i I still have my proportion my proportion wheel and my pica pole somewhere somewhere in my office my pica pole and proportion wheel Okay. From the old newspaper days. So people yeah, yeah. who people who know know. Yeah, yeah. I know what a proportion wheel is. I don't know what the other is, but were you an editor that you had a proportion wheel? Yeah, I worked on the newspaper at uh, in college. So I helped. Uh, this was a the Collegian, Los Angeles City College. Oh, nice. All right. Yeah. So I was a photographer. I was a writer. I was an editor. We had to lay out the 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 newspaper. So you use the proportion wheel and the pica pole in order to, you know, do the headlines and all the stuff that you needed to do to produce a, a yeah, newspaper every every two weeks. So of great, great times for, for me. <laughs> so going through all this work, I mean, I, I can't imagine how many, how many images and, and negatives you must have had that you had to go through for, for this book. Tell, tell me about the, that whole process. Well, the stuff sat in my file cabinet for 40 years. Uh, this January, I'll have been shooting professionally for 45 years. Um, my archivist, Michael Parker, 
really basically said, hey, you got to do something with this stuff. You, you got to, you know, you got to use it. You got to show it. You got it. So we pulled it out. Um, we use a freelance um, editor. Not everyone now. It's like, oh, I'm going to edit my pictures. Oh, no, you're going to retouch them or composite them. Editing means you're going to pick pictures. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we hired my friend Sally to edit the work. She did an edit. And then there were still pictures that I couldn't, um, I, I didn't have that I wanted. So right up until publication time, we were registering pictures properly by finding them in Boston Rock Magazine to know when they were published. So we would register to the copyright registration as published as opposed to unpublished. So we found these pictures while we were in that process before the book went to the printer, we were finding images that we hadn't edited and we'd go back and we'd go back and do like, we were at one point there was an Indian company that would hand courier the film to India and do two pass 16 bit Adobe RGB 98 scans for us for 70 cents an image. Then, you know, if you take it to a photo impact or whoever and get a, you know, a drum scan, it's 75 bucks an image. So we scan most of the book through this Indian company. Now, since COVID, they've closed their Indian facility and they only scan sRGB, as I like to say, shitty RGB. And, um, <laughs> um, you know, it's so we, we've, we've made other arrangements, but we were doing like, we'd have like five emergency scans and I'd call Don Weinstein at Photo Impact and it's like, Don, I got five images for you. You got to do them really quick because we're we're suggesting it to the, you know, we're suggesting it to the publisher and they're laying it out and the book's got to go to press. And, you know, then my team had to do a retouch and we really didn't retouch just like a tonality, you know, tonality thing. And so it, it was, people don't realize this, but like to edit a project that's in your archive like this takes a long, long time. I mean, this book was three or four years to come to fruition, and then it's been out for two, and we're still promoting it. We have museum shows around the world. We have a show that just closed in Malaga, Spain, that's going to uh, at just outside of Lisbon. And the show at the uh, Southeast Museum of Photography at Daytona State University is headed to the Lancaster Museum of Art. If anyone in our audience is in the L.A. area, that opens on February 4th, Saturday, February 4th, just in uh, about four weeks. So a little less than four weeks. So it's a process and it's going to continue. It's going to continue. I'm working on the celebrity book with um, uh, with Fahey Klein Gallery, and I'm expecting that to take three or four years just to edit find a publisher, you know, and that'll be about right because we'll have expended, you know, the, the punk book and project will just have been grown up and be able to travel on its own at that point. Yeah. Going back to your old, old work, I'm curious as to when you look at that work, 
do you see sort of the germs of of not so much a style but maybe a sensibility that that was just sort of in its infancy that you feel like is part and parcel of what you do now as a photographer? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, just from a logistical standpoint, you know, my desire not to shoot just concert pictures of people and to have a session to do portraits, to take the band backstage and create a photograph to put Billy Idol in the corner of the paradise backstage in that corner, reminiscent of Irving Penn's forced corner that he created, you know, taking the specials and shooting them backstage at the Bradford ball, right ballroom and running lights through the glass block and trying to make an interesting picture, taking Adam Ant and putting him in front of the cat columns outside of WTBS at MIT, those beautiful columns at MIT and getting the graphic elements there. And like my desire for portraiture became evident there. Because you couldn't do, you really didn't do that as a photojournalist, especially for the Associated Press. But you, I was able to do that as a, as a, you know, as a self not really self-assigned, but in a way self-assigned. I got an assignment and I could do really whatever I wanted, right? So um, as a as a self-creative photographer, when I had came to shooting these bands, I went the extra mile to make sure I had access, I could pose them, and I can create an interesting portrait, you know? You know, and that that was that was the beginnings of my time as a celebrity photographer and a portraitist right and and they were always lit even if they're crude and it's a bounce flash on the ceiling they were always lit you know as one of the things about that the whole the whole punk scene is that it created an opportunity for women to rock in a way that really wasn't accessible before talk to me about that part of the of the scene well i mean i think that I, I, that's a great that that's a, a great question, and I think that the publisher really wanted to, uh, uh, you know, show that with the cover with with the Wendy O. Williams smashing the MTV on the TV. It and I've had women musicians say this, you know, we started a band. I didn't, and I'm not saying this is women musicians at all. I, I know the Ramones couldn't play their instruments, but I, I had friends that started a band. They're like, I can't play an instrument. I learned. I, I learned to, to be in a band. Like, it, the time in general allowed people to not have to be master musicians. But for women, it was a rebellion. Women were part of that rebellion. You know, it was, it was important. It, it was... You know, and, and there were some great bands, the Slits, the Modettes. I mentioned the Modettes before. The Au Pairs had, um, uh, you know, a couple of women leads. You had uh, the Pretenders and Chrissy Hines and the Plasmatics. And um, it really put a lot of women in the front and made great music. I mean, one of my favorite fun bands, you know, you had the B-52s, which had two women leads. Who else? Um, Lena Lovich, who was uh, 
prominent in the book because she's so photogenic and we had a couple of great sessions together. Um, you know, she was just very fun. You know, my dear friends from the band Human Sexual Response, which was, you know, they never really broke big, but, you know, they had a four part harmony as a, as a, as a lead. And, you know, Casey was a you know, woman in the middle of that. It, there, it was a very female centric uh, time. You know, I have friends, the, the, my friend who was a girlfriend at the time, Marsha Maglioni, who was in the band Bound and Gagged, she was the one who's like, well, I'm learning the keyboards because I want to be in a band. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, that, that was an all-female, you know, sort of rebellious band. Um, it, it was definitely a, a female-centric time, and, and I think it was an amazing time. You said that initially the, the music was being played like on college radio and and then eventually the more traditional radio stations re realized that this is music that they, they had to play. And so it started getting out there to a, a greater audience. Being a kid of the 80s, cannot mention the, the, the role that video played in the early 80s. And I remember, you know, some of these, these bands, my, my introduction to some of these bands uh, were the result of, of music videos. How did, you know, sort of the opening up of the audience to this music um, sort of change what you were able to do with the pictures that you did create of, of, these, of these musicians and these bands? Well, you got to realize that MTV, which started in 1981, at the time was no better than, at the time was no better than commercial radio. I mean, it was heavy with top 40 bands um it you know it was a lot of michael jackson it was prince it was you know and and i i think you know michael jackson and prince were i i love prince there's you know were were the better of the pop you know am radio sort of you know they, i think they both prince transcended both fm and am radio they didn't focus on the music until the music became more culturally accepted by, you know, commercial radio. But you didn't really see the Sex Pistols screaming, God save the queen, she ain't no human being on MTV. Like, you know, they, they were really a commercial entity. And you still, you know, it was still college radio that broke ground with it. And f like I said, forced the K-Rocks of the world to have to play it. Yeah, because we had a KRQ, 106.7 down here in Southern California. That was the, the station, I think the only station I could turn to to hear this music at the time. Well, and um, it was later that it came in. So Oedipus worked for WBCN when he came to WBCN from TBS. He still kept his show, Nocturnal Emissions, and he had one show at on uh, WBCN, the K-Rock station in Boston, um, I call the Demi Moan, I believe, but there, all, all of those people were like Tony Berardini, the manager of WBCN, actually moved to manage the K Rock station. I mean, they were on par with each other. You know, Rodney was a little later, but he was the Oedipus of the of the Boston scene. Oedipus was before him, um, um, but they were the more progressive stations as opposed to. Uh, in Boston, W A A F and things like that. So, 
What, what was distinctive about the Boston scene as compared to New York or, or elsewhere? I, I actually think we had a bigger scene because Boston is it, it has the most amount of institutions of higher learning, meaning post high school, of any area region in the world. There are more colleges, universities, trade schools than anywhere, you know, MIT, Harvard, Boston University, Boston College, Emerson, Tufts, like, and a million little, you know, colleges and, you know, in that whole area. So we had this youth culture that was just built in. It was built in. Like, if there were six great clubs in New York, there were 30 clubs in Boston. And again, mm. the first radio radio show in the world was in Boston. The first radio show in the world, the, um, uh, the first daily punk radio show. So we really gave... Um, we really gave the world and, and then the record companies, interestingly enough, made the first tour date of everyone's tour, whether you were Devo and you're from Akron or you're a London band. The first tour date was Boston. And there were several reasons for that. One was it was the closer flight to, from London. It was an hour closer. But it was the warm-up for New York, and everyone was worried about, you know, the critics in New York and the record companies, and, you know, so you would play Boston, Providence, New Haven for Yale, and then New York. So Boston was the number one first night of every show of every band. Sex Pistols never made it up north, um, but a normal record company tour would start from Boston in the winter, go south and come back around and go out of Boston, or in the summer, go north. And then by the time they're in, it's the winter, they'd go south and back up the coast. And, you know, we were the groundbreakers in that way. I, there's a little thing I, I have when I speak at the museums, I have uh, a little presentation video, like a 15 minute presentation video of my work. And when I speak at the museums, I um, uh, play this um, video and the video has uh, three, you know, uh, title cards that come up on the video. And I think it sums it up in, and this is, this is, these are the three title cards. In, 19, in 1995, a pink-haired DJ named Oedipus started the world's first punk radio show, Nocturnal Emissions, at WTBS, a small radio station at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The popularity of that show spawned a daily punk, post-punk, new wave radio show at WTBS called The Late Risers Club. Boston, being a city of students and youth culture, developed one of the largest underground music scenes in the world, changing the face of radio and the, mu and the music industry profoundly. So, I mean, that's sort of the untold, you know, unrealized story of, of, of that, you know, that, that town at that time. You, you talked earlier about the control that artists and record labels have in terms of the the images and how they're used and whether or not they can be published, so on and so forth. Um, 
considering that that wasn't an issue when you're creating these images, did you have to deal with any sort of legalese stuff like releases and uh, even with, with images that you wanted to use for, for this book 40 years later? You know, books, uh, some some of our listeners might know, you know, I, I, I run a copyright defense company. I've been, uh, for 20 years, I was the chair of the advocacy uh, committee for the Advertising Photographers of America. Yeah, I've spoken on in Congress about copyright and photographers' rights. And um, just f for the most part, you know, a book is protected by the First Amendment. And we didn't get releases back then. It's the cover you have to worry about. Mm. And the cover you have to worry about because the cover is used in ads to advertise the book. And then it's not editorial anymore. So we, I hunted down Wendy O. Williams' partner who controls the estate. He was in the band and he, she, she left the estate to him. Um, and he gave us permission. I made him a print. We're in touch. You know, he's, we had a fashion label at the time interested in doing some, uh, clothing stuff. And, you know, he, he's been, he's been really, really supportive and very nice, but, but, uh, you know, we get the permission for the cover and we leave it at that. Did this working on this book um, allow you to reconnect with people that you? So totally. I, I mean, I joke. It's like I, I, I like Billy Idol and I like have had some wild nights. I haven't been able to get a hold of Billy, um, but I've, you know, I'm in touch with Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth of of uh, the Talking Heads and Steve Diggle, who's you know, Diggle and, and Shel Pete Shelley has died. And so, t yes, yes. Uh, Nick Lowe came to my opening in London, um, had dinner with uh, Elliot uh, e Easton of the cars recently. Like it, it has reconnected me. And I, you know, we, we were joking. It's like our audience doesn't realize, yes, you put film in a camera, you <laughs> focused the camera, you set the shutter speed and aperture. You had to calculate if you were using strobe, you know, that it had to be at the right shutter speed so you wouldn't clip it. And then you had to ca calculate, you know, you pushed your film if there wasn't enough light. You know, there were all these calculations that were manual. But at the same time, when it comes to staying in touch with people, there was no email. There, there, yeah. there, there was no cell phones. Like if you moved your apartment or your house, you left your phone number. Like you no longer have that phone number. So it, it's, um, it's um, you know, it, it was a different time and it was been very, very hard to stay in touch with people. I moved to Los Angeles uh, to be a contributor for People Magazine. I sort of left the music scene behind, which was late night drug-induced drinking. I, I'd be dead if I was still in <laughs> scene. <laughs> so, so um, I went and I moved into the celebrity, you know, portraiture oh, has always interested me since I picked up my first camera. Um, so I moved more into shooting. Yeah, I came out here, I did some coverage of events and stuff like that, but I really moved into um, portraiture more and more. By, you know, in doing that, I sort of left that world behind. You know, I wasn't in the 
band scene anymore where I would see people come through and get their new phone number. And so the project has absolutely connected me with a lot of people, tremendous amount of people. And it's, it's really sweet, you know, even if it's through Facebook or Instagram or whatever, it's, it's just really sweet. So it's nice. Um, it's, and, and what's, what's sad is people like, you know, Joe Strummer died a while ago, but, uh, but Pete Shelley died recently. And as we all age, passing before you can i can connect with them but um the people i have connected with it's been amazing well i'm i usually ask um a, a guest to recommend another photographer but i want to do something different with you i'd like you to recommend three albums that you would suggest our listeners take a take time to listen to and it's not necessarily your favorite albums it's just albums that you think sort of Wow. I mean, do we, do we want, do we want to go with the classics that they don't know, you know, the Sex Pistols, the Buzzcocks and the Clash, or do we want to go with the obscure? (laughs) Whatever you want to do. All right. So if they want to go with the classics, um, I've got to do a little, cause I don't know the type, the, the album names and I do have to move the mic here. So if we're going for the classics, let's do, the never mind the bullocks by the sex pistols so that's their first album 1977 pretty brilliant it's got all their classics clash songs and albums i think that guns london calling is pretty freaking amazing the album london calling 1979 by the clash and let's see the buzzcocks Let's see. Singles Singles Going Steady are is an amazing album. 1979, but Ever Fallen in Ever Fallen Love is on an album called um Love Bites. Another music in a different kitchen, uh the song Boredom is pretty amazing. Then now, if you want to go like crazy and really unique, find anything by the Mekons. Find anything by the band The Pairs, and find anything by The Modettes. All highly recommended, all interesting, all unique sounds, and you'll enjoy it. Um, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the main ones you know, of course, right? Yeah, yeah. But the Mekons, the Modettes, and the Pairs, um you 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 probably don't so i've got all that vinyl sitting down there somewhere (laughs) oh i bet yeah yeah because i was making notes because they're like those three bands you mentioned i had not heard of them so i've been making notes about uh bands to look up after having gone through the book so oh man Uh, like magazine if you don't know magazine the song howard devoto was the original singer to the buzzcocks and um he has a song uh a song from under the floorboards like there's just there was great interesting music you know what what survived were the hits you know in the big bands the clash the sex pistols the buzzcocks um but there was a it was a tremendous time of creativity that's really yeah. what it was in music so and, and you it captured it on film what's that and you I, captured it on film yeah it was amazing to be a part of it well, Michael, thank you as always. It was a thank real pleasure. I'm glad we had a chance to reconnect us the year, last year and you 
tell me about the book. So I, I really appreciate you having me on the show. And we're now both advisory board members to the Los Angeles Center of Photography, which we both, I know we both support. If you enjoy the content that we produce here at The Candor Frame, it would mean the world to us if you would support us financially. The podcast has always been available to you for free, but the show isn't free to produce and distribute. You help us to meet the cost of production and have allowed us to produce things like the Candid Frame app, which is also available for free. You can contribute $5, 10 $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame. Though we would love to have you as a longtime supporter, your commitment for even just three to six months would be helpful. Please consider doing it today. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Michael for joining us. Find out more about Michael and his work by visiting greco.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Lars Hergard and Christine Romero for their generous contributions. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.